today. That's good stuff. You guys can all head home and get showered up and be ready for the altar call. Okay. Uh, we've been in the middle of a series called Famous Last Words, where we've been looking at the last words that Jesus spoke while he was on the cross. And we're going to continue that this morning. This morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. It says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, and when it says the disciple whom he loved, that's referring to John. When he saw the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple he said, Here is your mother. From this time on, the disciple took her into his home. This is an amazing statement by Jesus on the cross where Jesus calls his disciples to live a life of love. It's an incredibly loving thing that John does to take Jesus' mother into his home as his own mother and to care for her for the rest of his life. That's a pretty serious commitment. It's an incredibly loving thing to do. Uh, my wife's parents live in Florida, and uh, some time ago, some years ago, they were working on a, a project in their house, and they asked me to come down and help them, so I, I flew down to Florida to help them, and it was kind of a busy week for me. I was working on stuff here um, in the beginning of the week, trying to get enough stuff done that I could sneak away to Florida for a few days to help them, and then I was trying to sneak back here on Saturday to get home to lead worship on Sunday morning. And so it was Sunday or uh, Saturday evening, and I got to the airport and my flight got delayed. The plane that was coming in to pick us up was late coming in, and I was like, oh man, am I going to be able to get home? But finally the plane showed up, and uh, the, everyone was getting loaded on the plane, and we were going to take off pretty quickly because we had, got, we had gotten a late start. So we all got on the plane, and it was a smaller plane. There was like six seats across with a row down the middle, three on each side. And I made my way down to my seat. When I got to my seat, I saw that there was a man sitting in the seat uh, against the window, and he was just reading a magazine. And he didn't really acknowledge me or anything like that. And to be honest, that was totally fine with me because I was whooped and wanted to just get home and go to bed. And so I sat down in my seat, which was right in the aisle, and this, the plane was pretty full, but there wasn't anybody sitting between us, and that was also okay with me. And so uh, I sat there, and then the, um, the person at the gate called to the flight attendants and said there was one more person who was coming on the plane to hold the plane. So they held the plane, and this lady came running on the plane, and she was a little bit disheveled. And um, from the second this lady got on the plane, everybody knew this woman was a talker. I mean, she got on the plane, and she says to herself, she says, oh, we made it. Thank God we finally made it. And she's talking to herself as she's walking down the aisle, and she says, you know, uh, aisle three, seat B, nope, that's not me. And she's just kind of talking her way down the aisle. And I'm watching this lady come, and I'm like, there's only so many open seats on this plane, and I'm fairly confident this lady is going to be sitting next to me. So I'm just kind of watching her come in, going, oh, man, like I thought it was just me and this guy reading this magazine, but... Here comes Tammy joining us. So she makes her, makes her way down the aisle, and she gets back to me, and she says, Sir, sir, I, I think I'm sitting next to you. And I said, Okay. So I got up, and I let her sit down, and I knew this lady was going to want to talk to me the whole way home. So 
preemptively, I, I got in the uh, overhead bin and I got a book out and I thought, you know, if I, I get really into this book and I like get it right in my face, like maybe that'll ward her off. It was unsuccessful. It lasted about a minute and then she says, so what are you reading? And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to have to talk to this lady for the next hour and a half. Like there's, there's no way around it, right? So we sat there and we talked for the next hour and a half. And when I say that we talked for the rest, the next hour and a half, Really, I mean, she talked to me for the next hour and a half, and I said things like, oh, that's interesting. You don't say. Go figure. Who would have thought? And that's just wonderful. And so she told me a lot about her life. I got to know pretty much all the stuff about this lady. I got to know about her friend that she was visiting in Florida. I got to know about her family back in Buffalo. I got to know about her friend's extended family. I got to know about her extended family. I got to know about college. I got to know about the car she wanted to buy. I got to know about her cat named Tom. I got to know about her dad who needed to get surgery but didn't want to because he was too stubborn. I got to know all the stuff about this lady. We're getting near the end of the flight, and uh, the captain comes over the intercom, and he says, we're about to make our descent into Buffalo. And uh, the lady was kind of quiet for a minute, which was a welcome change. And uh, then she says, I guess I'm just going to have to come out and ask, aren't I? And I didn't really know what she was talking about, so I said, I guess so. <laughs> so she leans over closer to me and she says, do you know Jesus? And I said, I do. But then I saw the look on her face of disappointment and sadness, and she was so excited to tell me about Jesus. So real quickly I said, I do, but not very well. And so then this woman started to tell me her story about how when she was in college, she had, someone had told her about Jesus and she accepted Jesus and her life was completely transformed. And then she said to me, she said, if this plane doesn't land on the ground in the way that you and I are hoping it does and it gets there a little bit quicker than we anticipated, where do you want to spend eternity? And I said, I want to spend eternity in heaven. She said, will you pray after me? And I said, yes, I will. So I, I prayed after this woman, and she led me to the Lord for the, I don't know how many time, a lot, the 10th time, the 15th time, I don't know. But I got saved that day again. And when that lady left the plane, I don't really think she walked out of the plane. I mean, she was on cloud down. She basically just levitated, just hovered right out of that plane. And then we got down to the baggage claim, and I was on one side of the conveyor belt, and she was on the other, and she would look over at me, and she would give me one of these, and... <laughs> one of these and I'd give her one of these back and then eventually a man came in to greet her and that guy was her husband and uh, you know then she told her husband what happened and she'd point that's the guy over there I led him to the Lord so then her and her husband wanted to pray for me so then they came over and prayed the prayer of faith over me which was just a blessing and I got my bag and I went home and went to bed and then came here and led worship the next day so this is kind of a funny story about how this talkative lady led a pastor to the Lord. But I was thinking about it. You know, I wonder what compelled this woman to tell me about the Lord. For an hour and a half, I didn't realize it initially, but really when she was talking to me all that time, she was trying to get up the courage to tell me about God. I wonder what it was about her that compelled her to tell me about Jesus. And I think what happened was it was, the same thing that happened to John. John was the disciple that was closest to Jesus. John spent 
more time with Jesus than anybody else. And the more time that John spent with Jesus, the more John started to look like Jesus. Jesus started to rub off on John. And that's what happened with this lady. She started spending more and more time with Jesus, who is literally perfect love. And the more time that she spent with him, the more she started to look like him. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what this woman was doing. She was being Jesus' witness. And that's what the disciples are doing. The disciples are being Jesus' witness in the earth. They spent time with Jesus and they got around him and who he was rubbed off on them. And they couldn't help but tell the world around them about Jesus who is perfect love. They're going around and telling everyone about Jesus. That's what the disciples are doing. They're spending their days telling people about Jesus. And they weren't just doing it when it was easy. They were also doing it when it was hard. And I'm not talking about the wussified version of hard that we have in 2021. I'm talking really hard. You know, we call it hard when our Wi-Fi goes out. So we take our phone and we hop on Facebook and we update our status to let everybody know we're having a hard day and suffering for Jesus. My Wi-Fi's out. Hashtag prayers appreciated. That's not, what, that's not a hard day for the disciples. For the disciples, for them, a hard day is when they watch their friend get boiled alive in a vat of oil for sharing the message of the gospel. And you would think that that would like slow them down, like, well, if my friend just got burnt in oil, maybe I ought to slow down a little bit. But it doesn't. They actually like ramp it up when they see this happen. They're like, well, if my days are numbered, I'm going to go all the more in on telling everyone around me about Jesus. For us, where are we when it comes to this? Are we sharing this love of Jesus with the world around us? I've got to be honest and tell you that sometimes I don't think our love meter is very high. I don't think we're as loving as we could or should be. And so I started thinking about that. I started thinking about how John made this decision to be loving, to do this amazingly loving thing and take care of Jesus' mother for the rest of his life. And then think about the fact that in reality, we're not all that loving sometimes. And I was thinking, why is that? And I'd planned to just simply preach a message about what it means to be a loving disciple of Jesus. But as I prayed about it and said, God, what is it? Why are we not the loving church that we're called to be? Like, where is this loving church that we see in the beginning with the disciples? Where is it now? And God spoke to me, and he said, the church is angry. When he first spoke that to me, I thought that was a little strange. But the more I thought about it, and I looked at the church today, I looked around and I said, you're right, the church is angry. Where is the love in the church of God today? I believe the love is missing because anger is way too present. The church has been consumed by anger, and in many cases, we've been proud of it. If I was sitting down one-on-one with, you, with some of you here today, and I said, I think you're angry. I think some of you would say, you're darn right I'm angry. And then you start to tell me why you're angry, and then you would begin to justify your anger. And there's some of us that even want to get really spiritual about it, and we call our anger righteous anger. The title of my message this morning is, Whatever Anger 
is helping you accomplish, love will do a better job. Whatever anger is helping you accomplish in your life, whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish through anger, love will do a better job. What I want to do is I want to take a little bit of a um, walk through the Bible this morning and see what the Bible has to say about anger. And i got to tell you, there is way more scriptures that speak to anger in the Bible than I had any idea. There's no scripture I'm going to share with you today that I haven't read before, but I never quite saw it in this same way. And depending how you define anger, some people say that there's over a thousand scriptures in the Bible that speak to anger. So we're going to look at some of those today. The first one is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament warns of the destructive power of anger. It warns us that anger can be destructive. King David said in Psalm 37.8, Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. It only leads to evil. According to King David, there's only one place that anger leads, and it's evil. If you find yourself driving down a highway called anger, Every single exit, exit after exit after exit, is labeled evil. There's only one place that anger leads, and it's evil. That's kind of scary. I want you to think back to the last time you were angry. Maybe for some of you it was sometime last month. Maybe for some of you you had a rough morning and it was this morning. Or maybe for someone in this room it was last Saturday when you tried to take your four daughters out for Valentine's Day and it was a total disaster, and you got really angry. I mean, maybe that's you, maybe it's me, it's hard to say. Um, according to King David, there's only one place that that anger leads. Think back to last month when you were angry, or this morning, or whenever it was. There's only one place that anger leads, and it's evil every single time. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, Do not quickly... Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. According to King Solomon, if you're angry, you're probably on the edge of making a fool of yourself. One writer said that, that I read said that in the Old Testament, the clear picture that's painted is that anger is too hot to handle for anyone other than God. Isn't it true that Anger so many times leads to evil, or we're usually on the edge of doing something stupid. I don't know about you, but I've been angry a time or two, at least, in my life. And I can say that if I'm honest, pretty much when I'm angry, I'm usually on the edge of saying something stupid, or doing something that I'm going to look back at and regret later. In fact, I thought about it this week while I was working on this sermon. I thought back through my life. And I can't find one time, and I thought of a bunch of times that I had been angry in my life, I couldn't find one time that I was angry, and out of anger, it helped me make a wise decision. I couldn't think of one. In reality, most of the time when I'm angry, I'm usually about to do or say something that I'm going to regret later. Then in the New Testament, Jesus takes it to another level when he equates anger with murder in Matthew 5, verse 21. It says, You have heard that it was said to the, to the people long ago, 
you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus takes it to a whole nother level where he says, if you murder, you're subject to judgment, but if you're angry with a brother or sister, you're subject to that same judgment. Then the Apostle Paul adds anger to his list of vices that Christians should stay away from. In Ephesians 4.31 he says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And then in Colossians 3.8 he says, Do not, or he says, But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 20 and 21, in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, he says almost the same exact thing. When we look at anger, oftentimes we look at it like it's kind of on the fence. Like, is it really bad? Is it really not that bad? Kind of like if someone were to lie right to your face, we would look at that and we'd say, that is sin. But if someone kind of skirted around the truth, we would be like, you know, is that sin? Is it not sin? Maybe somebody didn't give us all the necessary information, like kept out an important piece of information. It wasn't really lying. We might even call it like a white lie, as if a white lie isn't sin. But, but you know what I mean. We kind of look at it like that way. We look at anger like it's kind of on the fence. According to the Apostle Paul, there is nothing on the, on the fence about anger. There's nothing that's questionable about it. The Apostle Paul says anger is sin, and it's sin that has no place in the life of a believer. And some of us, out of a desire to justify our anger, we say that we have anger that is righteous anger. How many of you have ever heard that term before, righteous anger? I have a shocking piece of information for you. You don't just get to put the word righteous in front of a sin, and now all of a sudden it's a good behavior. It's not righteous immorality or righteous molestation. This is not, not going to work that way. You can't just put the word righteous in front of a sin and, and call it all good. In fact, righteous anger actually isn't in the Bible whatsoever. There's nowhere that you could find it. There's a scripture that people uh, commonly refer to that this idea of righteous anger is pulled from, and that's 2 Corinthians 7.11. So see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. It's this word indignation that people oftentimes pull this idea from of righteous anger. As it turns out, this word indignation isn't a word in Greek that has anything to do with anger whatsoever. This word in the Greek is much more closely associated with grief. In fact, if you translate that word directly to English, it would be the most accurate way to, to translate it would be to grieve greatly. I think this idea of grieving greatly can help us to know what to do when we feel angry. What's the difference between anger and grief? Anger is actually one of the stages of the seven stages of grief that psychologists tell us about. So what's the difference between anger and grief? 
Anger focuses on the victimizer. It says, this person did this, or this person did that, and I want justice. When it comes to anger, I am the judge. Whereas grief focuses on the victim. Grief sees the pain that was caused to someone, and it says, I care deeply about that thing that happened to that person. But grief lets Jesus stay the judge, and we don't put ourselves in the position of trying to be the judge. And I've got to tell you, Jesus is a much better judge than I am and you are, and we ought to let him be the judge. It's not a sin to feel intense emotions. In John 11, Jesus is talking to Lazarus' sister, who says, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, Jesus knew that just a little while later, he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and the situation was going to be resolved. But still, he felt the pain that Lazarus' sister felt. And the Bible says Jesus wept. And Jesus weeping is a picture of grief. Jesus could have been angry that she didn't have enough faith. He could have been frustrated with her, but he, he didn't. He met her in that place where she felt these intense emotions, and he grieved with her. You know, I wonder, what if instead of being an angry church, what if we were a grieving church? What if we were a church that grieved over what our world has become? And we began to be a grieving church that interceded for the world around us instead of a church that was simply mad at the world? What if instead of casting judgment on the world around us, what if we left the judgment up to Jesus because he can handle it better than we can? And what if we simply loved the world around us? I know that this has been a, a year like no other. I mean, none of us in our lifetimes have experienced anything like what happened in this last year. In fact, I think we're right around the one-year anniversary from when the pandemic started, or at least when we became aware of the pandemic. Um, this has been a year like no other, and a lot of us have a lot of strong feelings about what's gone on in this last year, and that makes sense based on everything that happened. Like, our lives were turned upside down. So I, it would make sense to me that we would all have a lot of strong feelings. And then there's all the political stuff that's going on in the world, and I would imagine probably most of you guys have some strong feelings one way or another about those things that are going on. But what is the church offering the world around it in this insane time? We have this insane pandemic that we're going through, which is just crazy on so many levels. Then we have all the political upheaval and craziness going on. What is the church offering up to the world. The church is on display right now under all the pressure of life, everything that everyone's feeling. What is the church showing the world? Anger. We have an opportunity to show the world something. We have an opportunity to shine the light of Christ that would be an amazing opportunity. But what are we offering the church? What are we offering the world? We're offering the world anger. What if instead of a church that was marked by anger, what if we were a church that was marked by grief, compassion, and love? 
What if instead, instead of another social media rant, what if you just, you know, just slowly set your phone down and slowly step away from the phone? I know it's going to be hard. What if instead of another social media rant, what if you got down on your knees and began to pray for the world around you? What if you felt the passion that Jesus feels for the world around you and began to actually do something about it? Do something meaningful in the world? What if you began to see the world through Jesus' lens? What if you began to see the world around you instead of just broken and messed up and you're just ticked off about it? What if you saw a world that was broken by sin? It's sin that broke the world. It's not people that broke the world. I hate to break that to you, but it's not people that are breaking the world. It is sin. Sin broke the world. But guess what? You and I hold the answer to sin. But no one's going to want to hear the answer to the sin because they have to pull it through the filter of anger that the church is putting on display for the world. Lastly, in the Bible, we have Jesus' brother, James, who says to be slow to anger. James 1, 19-20 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. This is some of the most sage wisdom I've probably ever heard in my life. If there's a verse for the church in 2020, I believe it might be this, to be quick to listen, be slow to speak, and slow to become angry. When April and I do premarital counseling with couples that are um, getting ready to get married, sometimes we'll do this exercise with them. Where And it seems a little bit childish when you're doing it. And I know that all of you are so, married couples here are so far above this type of exercise. And like, you guys don't ever have fights or fits, fits of rage where you look like Satan. I know you don't, but if you ever find yourself there, this exercise might actually be helpful to you, or if there's some other person who's much more immature than you, then maybe you could share this advice with them. So we do this little exercise sometimes where we will take an object, it can be any object, it doesn't really matter, and we'll put that in one person's hand. And we'll say, this person who's holding the object, whoever's holding the object, it's their job to share their feelings, it's their job to do the talking. The person who's not holding the object, their, their only job is to think about what the person is saying and try and understand what the person is saying. So somebody will, uh, let's pick on Frank and Connie, just for an example. And you had to pick on somebody, and they've been married a while, so they, they got it all worked out. So let's say Frank did something stupid. Let's say he got really mad, and he took the haagen out of the freezer, and he said, you know what, Connie, I'm done with this. And he whipped it across the room and smashed it on the wall. haagen everywhere. Not a good day for Frank, right? So now they, they had their fight, and their fight is over. Now it's time for them to talk. So Connie holds a salt shaker, we'll say. Connie holds a salt shaker, and she says, Frank, when you whipped the haagen against the wall, I didn't feel safe, and you're supposed to protect me. I didn't feel safe. And so then we, say, we take the salt shaker, we hand it to Frank, and we say, Frank, what did you hear Connie say? And he said, 
I heard her say, you wasted Haagen-Dazs, that was stupid. Nope, Frank, that's not what she said, let's try again. So then Connie comes back and Connie says, when you threw the Haagen-Dazs, I didn't feel safe. So Frank says, okay. He takes the salt shaker and he says, when, when I threw the Haagen-Dazs, you didn't feel safe. Yay, Frank got it, good job, Frank. So then Frank, he did his job of listening to what the other person said. When you're the person that's listening, when someone else is speaking, so many times it's so easy to start building your case for why you're right and they're wrong, right? Just in your mind, you're just hardly even hearing what they're saying anymore. This is the first thing, and you just start building your case for why you're right and they're wrong. But that's not what we're supposed to be doing in this exercise. We're supposed to be listening to that person to understand that person. So Frank does that. He listens. And then he thinks about it for a little while. He doesn't respond real quick. He doesn't just let the words fly out of his mouth. The first thing that comes to his mind might not be appropriate to be saying, so he's not going to just let that fly out of his mouth. He's going to sit there, he's going to think for a while. And then he says, you know what? I made Connie not feel safe. That's not what I want to do. That's not what I'm called to do. So then he can apologize and he can say, Connie, I'm really sorry that I made you feel that way. Like That wasn't my heart. I just got mad and lost my temper and wasted Haagen-Dazs. I'm sorry, would you forgive me, right? This verse says to be quick to listen, slow to speak. Being slow to speak almost implies that you're thinking before you're speaking. And it might be a revolutionary idea to some of us, but you can actually not just say the first thing that you think, not just say the first thought that comes to your mind. You can be patient and you can think for a while and you can process and then you can respond and say, is this thing that I'm about to say going to be helpful or beneficial to the situation? And then James says to be slow to anger. The last thing that James says in that portion of Scripture is human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Your righteousness is not producing what God desires. To put as plainly as I can, Anger is sin, and it is not producing what God wants. Now, I'm sure you probably have a number of questions about anger, and I probably can't answer all of them, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to answer the two most common questions that people ask about anger. First one is, is there a way to be angry and not sin? So for those of you that are hell-bent on holding on to your anger, and you've heard me explain to you why anger is sin and it's not good, and you're like, nope, I'm not giving up my anger, I'm going to hold on to it, I don't think it's sin. There's a scripture, there's one scripture in the Bible that says that you can sin, you can be angry, sorry, and not sin. There's a thousand scriptures that speak out against anger. Some of, just a few of them I shared with you today. But there's one scripture that says you can be angry and not sin. I want to share that with you. It's in Ephesians 4, verses 26 through 27. Paul says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Paul wrote this verse uh, from prison in Rome. And he was writing to the church at Ephesus. And if I know Paul at all, he probably got in prison and he probably started preaching and teaching and leading people to Christ. It was like everywhere Paul goes, this is what he does. And I got to believe that while he was in prison, he was leading people to Christ. Maybe a crowd of prisoners began to form around him. 
and he was teaching. And one of the things you'll learn about Paul is when he's teaching on sin, oftentimes he likes to list out a lot of specific sins. It's kind of funny when he does. Like he'll just list out a bunch. I'm going to read through that uh, one of those lists in a second. He'll just list out a bunch of sins. And I got to believe, I don't know if this happened or not, but I got to believe that Paul had this crowd around him and he'd been teaching on all these sins and telling people to learn to live a different life. And somebody raised their hand and they said, well, can we be angry and not sin? Is that a possibility? Like, is, is it an option? Somebody who was hell-bent on holding on to their anger. And Paul thought about it for a second and he said, sure, sure, you can be angry and not sin. And everybody's ears perk up, and they're like, wait, we can? We thought for sure you are going to say no. We can be angry and not sin? And Paul says, sure, you can. So, well, how do we do that? How do we be angry and not sin? And he says, get rid of the anger as soon as you can, as fast as possible. And in fact, if you don't get rid of it by sundown, you're literally inviting the devil into your life. That's what you do when you hold on to anger. If you can't get rid of anger by sundown, you're literally partnering with the devil in your life. And I don't know about you, but that's not exactly what I want to do. And in case somebody walked away from that conversation with Paul, and they were going to twist his words, and they were just a little bit confused about whether or not anger was sin, just four verses later in Ephesians 31, Paul says this, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. The second question that many people ask is, but isn't anger just a natural emotion? And you're saying that we shouldn't have anger in our life, and you're saying anger is sin, but isn't anger a natural emotion that literally every single human being on the entire planet feels? Yeah, anger absolutely is a natural emotion. But it's a natural emotion that God calls us to overcome supernaturally. Can you imagine what the world would be like if everyone just gave into whatever emotions they were feeling in the moment? If everyone just gave into whatever natural desires and appetites they have in the moment? Like the world would be complete and utter chaos and a disaster. I'll give you a, an analogy that hopefully you can laugh at and it doesn't nail anybody to the wall too bad. So it was just Valentine's Day, and Valentine's Day is the uh, national holiday for chocolate, right? So everyone, everyone likes chocolate, everyone loves chocolate, and by the looks of things, some of us had a little too much chocolate this Valentine's Day. So everyone loves chocolate, it's a natural thing. Almost everyone loves chocolate, right? So let's just, let's just say for a second that every morning you get up, and you get a giant backpack full of chocolate. And you put that backpack on, and you go throughout your day. And just every time you start off your day, you have a cup of coffee and then a piece of chocolate. And then for the rest of the day, every time you have the natural desire for chocolate, the natural emotion to eat some chocolate, you just went ahead and, and ate that chocolate just all day long. I think that eventually that's going to become a problem. Eventually, your wife is going to call me and she's going to say, we got to cut the side of the house off with a chainsaw and I'm going to need you to get a forklift to get my husband out of the house to give him a sponge bath. Now, 
I'm willing to help with a lot of things. In fact, if I need to cut the side of your house off with a chainsaw and get someone with a forklift to come get you out, I'm willing to do that. But I am not giving you a sponge bath. I, I draw the line there. If we, amen, thank you. If we just naturally give in to every desire we have, we will literally destroy our lives. So of course anger is a natural emotion. But it's a natural emotion that we're called to overcome supernaturally. This is spelled out nicely in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 25. It says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behaviors, idolatry, witchcraft, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. All of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. For the sake of our message this morning... I'll rephrase that. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified anger with its passions and desires. We're called to supernaturally overcome the deeds of the flesh and walk in the Spirit. Whatever anger is helping you accomplish, love will do a much better job. So how do we deal with anger? Real quickly, I'm just going to give you three quick ways to deal with anger. The first one is discipline. This is the practice of love. This is the slow, methodical, slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. This is the everyday working out your salvation, the everyday practice. This is learning new habits. This is where you work out the process of changing the way that your life is right now. You change that pattern of being in anger. That's where you have responsibility in this. You don't just put it on someone else or even put it on God and say, well, God hasn't changed me. Nope. You've got to work out the everyday discipline of learning to get out of the frame of anger and walk in love. This is learning to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. The second is crucifixion. This is the verse that I just read. Now, those of you who belong to Christ crucified the flesh Maybe for some of you, there, this is an area of your life, being angry, that hasn't been surrendered to Christ yet. It's an area that you didn't even really think of it as being a big deal. You've kind of held it tightly. Maybe you're even someone who's been proud of it. You put it on display, and everyone knows you're angry. Maybe this is an area of your life that today, Jesus is asking you to surrender to him and allow him to crucify that so that that could die and the fruit of the Spirit could be birthed in your life. And the last way is repentance. We need to see our sin. We need to acknowledge our sin. Be broken over it and turn from it. This issue of anger in the church is not going to change until we see it as sin, we acknowledge it as sin, and we repent from it. Whatever you're trying to accomplish in anger, you might be able to accomplish it in anger. 
but love will serve you, and it'll serve me much better. Would you bow your heads this morning? John watched Jesus hang on the cross and die. John was the disciple that was closest to Jesus. John was probably Jesus' best friend, and Jesus was John's best friend. Can you imagine what it felt like to watch this Jesus who John had given up everything to follow? He had counted the cost. He had gone all in. He's following Jesus with his his life, and that's his best friend. And he watches him die and hang on a cross. I got to tell you, I think that anger would probably be a natural emotion to feel in that moment. If I was John and it wasn't a good day, I'd be looking to burn that city to the ground. You just killed my Savior and my best friend. But John sets aside the anger. He sets it aside and he picks up love in a moment of beautiful sacrifice. Jesus John takes Jesus' mother into his home and he lovingly cares for her for the rest of his life. And today Jesus is inviting you and I into that same life of laying down our anger, setting it aside. And Jesus is speaking to the church this morning and telling us what we're trying to accomplish in anger. Love will do a better job. I just want to give you a moment to repent before the Lord this morning. Maybe like me, you have known that anger was a sin, but maybe you didn't see it as clearly as you do today. I know I didn't see it as clearly as I do today. Just give you a minute to repent for your anger. Lord, we're sorry for the places where we've been anger, angry, and even we've been proud of it, and we've justified it, and we've made room for it in our life, and we've normalized it. But Lord, that's not who you called us to be. Sure, it's a natural emotion, it's a natural feeling, but Lord, you call us to overcome those natural things supernaturally. Lord, let the fruit of the Spirit becomes so evident in our lives that everyone around us knows and sees that we're a church marked by compassion and love and not a church marked by anger. Lord, we surrender our anger to you this morning. Lord, crucify that anger in our life so that we could be free to share your love with the world around us. Lord, I ask you to walk with each one as they begin to walk this out in their lives. And I ask that as they go through the process of the discipline of learning to set aside anger and to pick up love, when they go an inch, Lord, I ask you to go a mile. When they try and make a, take a step that they've tried before and failed, when they take that first step, Lord, I ask you to meet them there with grace upon grace where there's different ones who are stuck in this pattern of being angry a lot and really struggle with it, Lord, I ask that as they take a step, they would find you're right there to meet them with all the grace that they need to walk it out. I ask you to bless each one this morning. And Lord, I thank you for challenging us to be the church that you want us to be and not
just leaving us where we're at, but calling us higher. I ask you to bless each one as they go from this place this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed week.